0: This is Growing the Valley, a podcast by the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Miller, Orchard Systems Advisor for Butte, Tehama, and Glenn Counties.
1: I'm your other host, Phoebe Gordon, Orchard Systems Advisor for Madera and Merced Counties.
0: On the podcast today, I am sitting down again with Dr. Roger Baldwin. Roger is a Cooperative Extension Specialist in Human Wildlife Conflict. He's based at UC Davis, and he was previously on the podcast discussing gophers. a critical topic for so many folks, and we will link to that episode in the show notes. But today we're going to be covering a ton of ground, four different vertebrate pests, ground squirrels, voles, mice, and roof rats. Roger, let's start with probably the the biggest size-wise, but also problem-wise here, which is ground squirrels. What's the damage, the signs, and the symptoms for ground squirrels? My understanding is that with most vertebrate pests, we usually don't see the pest directly. We usually see the damage instead.
1: Right. So that generally is the case. However, ground squirrels might be the exception to that rule. And Ground squirrels are generally pretty visible out there. They're diurnal species, which means they're active during the daytime and they're communal. So they live together in groups. And for that reason, you do generally see ground squirrels out there. Usually, you know, identification is pretty easy. As far as the kinds of damage that they cause we're talking about nut crops they do like to climb up into trees and feed on the nuts that's a characteristic form of damage potentially damage to nuts up in the trees although oftentimes they just more or less will knock them down onto the ground they will girdle trees to some extent girdling is where they'll climb up into the tree and feed on the bark of some of the branches and that's obviously damaging as well they also like to chew on irrigation lines Pretty much all the rodents will do this, but we really hear a lot about it with ground squirrels causing all kinds of damage to drip tape and sprinkler systems. And then their burrow systems cause all kinds of problems too. We're talking about almonds or walnuts when it comes to shaking of trees to get the nuts on the ground. There are a certain percentage that are lost down those burrow systems. And depending upon how many open burrows you have out there, that can be fairly substantial. They are de- uh, hazards to farm equipment and farm laborers. And then we see increased soil erosion associated with those burrow systems. When you get water that starts channeling down through them, it can lead to fairly substantial erosion. This is particularly problematic if you're in areas of slope. So if it's really flat, then it's maybe a little bit less of a concern there. I guess one other item I didn't mention too, but oftentimes those borough systems are around the base of the tree. And if you get heavy rainfall events followed by strong winds that can lead to instability of the tree and they can get blown over that way.
0: A myriad of potential problems from ground squirrels. So many more issues beyond the one that I always think of, which is just those massive holes in the earth. Clarissa Reyes and I were doing some research in a prune orchard this past summer. And if you have a real ground squirrel problem, you really have to watch where you step and you could easily twist an ankle. So given that they can become a big issue and they're communal, what's the season? I know you often talk about ground squirrels at the same time that you end up talking about gophers in different talks and things, but they have a very different biological season for control than gophers do.
1: So gophers are active year round as ground squirrels though, are not generally active year round. They do hibernate in the winter time. So over those winter months, they're not going to be active. And if they're not active, then you don't want to try to manage them at that time. So you really want to focus on those timeframes where they are active. When they hibernate can vary from location to location and year to year. But generally speaking, they're going to be hibernating in December and January, at least. It oftentimes is best to try to manage them before you get that reproductive pulse in that population. And for ground squirrels, mating and birth of the young is going to happen sometime shortly after they emerge from hibernation and extend for a month or two. So when the young are born, they're not going to be up above ground yet. They're going to be completely reliant upon mom. So if you can try to knock down populations before they're up and above ground and independent of their mother, then it's going to be easier to try to manage them. Usually, from that time when they emerge from hibernation through the end of April, sometimes even extending into May. Timing also impacts the effectiveness of some of the tools that we use as well. Two of the more commonly used strategies that we use are burrow fumigants and rodenticides. And the burrow fumigants tend to work well after the ground squirrels emerge from hibernation. And the reason why is that for fumigants to work well, we need relatively high soil moisture. And of course, in California, being a Mediterranean climate, we get most of that moisture in winter through early to mid-spring. And so that tends to be the best time to use those fumigants. But also coincides well with the fact that a lot of the ground squirrels are, or particularly the females, are below ground with their young, and so that allows you to target them all at once. The fumigants tend to be less effective later in the year as the soil dries out. And so really trying to target that earlier in the year is the strategy you want. If you're going to rely on rodenticides as a tool to manage ground squirrels, then you want to wait until a little bit later in the year. When ground squirrels emerge from hibernation, they're primarily feeding on green foliage because that's abundant, relatively nutritious, high in protein at that time. And so that's what they prefer to eat. Yet the rodenticides that we use are usually seed or pelletized type products. Ground squirrels do eat seeds, but they wait until later in the year when that green foliage senesces. And so if you want to use those rodenticides, you're going to see better results after that green vegetation senesces, and they start to switch over to feeding on seed type products. So later in the year is the better time for utilizing those rodenticide products. A last thing to keep in mind when it comes to timing is that ground squirrels, in addition to hibernating, they can also estivate. Estivate is a period of inactivity in the middle of summer, basically the hottest time of the year. The adult ground squirrels will estivate at that time to avoid being up above ground and dealing with that heat. Basically, it's just energetically more beneficial for them to sleep it off down below than to try to deal with all that heat while out there looking food. So if part of the population is inactive at that time, then that also is probably not the best time frame to try to manage ground squirrels. As well. Just trying to keep an eye out for that and understanding that during those really hot times, it's probably not the best time frame to manage ground squirrels. Maybe wait until you start to move into early fall and then try a vernicide application or whatever other tools you might want to use. When it comes to estivation, though, only part of the population estivates. And so you do still see ground squirrels active throughout that summer timeframe. But if you really want to try to maximize the bang for your buck, you want to do it when all of the, the individuals are active in a population.
0: Well, I got to learn a new word today. So estivation that's very interesting and really important points there on the reduced efficacy of rodenticides in the middle of the summer and fumigants in the middle of the winter and soil moisture being so critical to fumigants. Something we also talked about in our gopher episode was those cultural controls, whether it be the management of vegetation weeds or using flood irrigation. What are some of the cultural controls?
1: One strategy is habitat modification. Um, Habitat modification oftentimes is a very effective tool to try to reduce potential problems with some of these vertebrate species. And There's less applicability of it for ground squirrels, but there still are some things that can be done to reduce, you know, the desirability of an area for ground squirrels. Uh, One example would be, you know, when we're talking about these orchards, oftentimes you have brush or pruning piles, whether that be on the perimeter of an orchard or even within the orchard itself. Important to understand that those brush or pruning piles are really great harbors for lots of different species. They can be rodent species, they can be birds, it can be raccoons, foxes, rabbits, you name it, and ground squirrels are included in that list. Having those kind of preferred harborage sites out there is going to potentially increase your problems with some of those species. To the extent that you can, getting rid of those is really advisable. For ground squirrels also, it's important to remember that they're creating burrow systems, which are essentially multi-level housing units out there in your orchards. And even if you, quote, evict the ground squirrels, the houses are still there. And so that makes it real easy for adjacent populations of ground squirrels to reinvade a particular area. You know how it goes. You do a really great job of trying to manage ground squirrels on your property, but your neighbors aren't very good at managing their ground squirrel population. And if that happens, then you're basically creating a vacuum and those ground squirrels from those adjacent properties are going to move back onto your property. One way that we can help to mitigate that is by destroying old burrow systems. This is easier said than done, particularly in an existent orchard system. The way to do it is, you know, deep ripping down a foot and a half in depth. And so that's really not possible in most orchard settings. But it might be possible on orchard perimeters. And so that's something to keep in mind. Or if you're taking an orchard out of production and then going to replant, if you had existent ground squirrel populations present in that orchard, you might try to get rid of the ground squirrels first. Then when you're, you know, ripping out the trees and everything, Rip the soil to at least a foot and a half in depth, and then that will destroy all those old burrow systems. And that makes it very difficult then once you replant for the ground squirrels to quickly reinvade back into the orchard interiors. But it also reinforces the reason why you should try to keep ground squirrel populations at a minimum within your field from the very beginning. Because once they do become established, you do have those burrow systems out there, and it makes it much more enticing for adjacent populations to constantly move back into those areas.
0: Once the housing is established, it's a much bigger issue to deal with going forward. That's a really interesting point. And then just the big picture concept that ground squirrels, gophers, these pests are a lot like what we're often talking about with things like Orange worm. It's an area wide problem. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> the real issue there of the working together with your neighbors in an integrated approach is yep. key
1: absolutely to the extent that you can do that that's going to give you a lot better long-term relief now if you're adjacent to rangeland or natural areas then there's a lot less that you can do about that because that's native habitat for ground squirrels and they're going to constantly be living there and moving back in in a situation like that one possibility is to utilize bait stations along the perimeter of your orchard That allows you to intercept some of those ground squirrels as they move onto your property. Sometimes people like to use traps along the perimeter as well if you don't want to use rodenticides. There's some things to know about trapping. Certainly you need to be cautious of how you do that to minimize non-target captures. There's generally a daily trap check requirement by California Department of Fish and Wildlife too. So there are some limitations there. But that kind of a perimeter treatment along those natural areas is something that could be employed. And it's something that I didn't mention um, earlier on, but trapping is another tool that's regularly used for ground squirrel management, tends to be a little bit more labor intensive. And so it's usually used as a follow-up approach. So always thinking about an integrated pest management strategy, you want to mix and match your tools to the greatest extent possible to maximize the long-term efficacy of your management programs. And Trapping is a great tool to add, uh, oftentimes on the back end of these management programs, trying to knock down populations, maybe initially with the rodenticide or a burrow of application, and then following up uh, by targeting some of the remaining individuals with trapping can be a good strategy. And then lastly, for ground squirrels, you know, shooting is a tool that can be used. It's a little bit more challenging for some of our smaller rodent species, but for ground squirrels, shooting is still used. Obviously, you have to be in an area where you can legally discharge a firearm, and so that limits, you know, where it can be used, and you certainly need to do so in a safe manner. Excellent.
0: A lot of different potential ways to manage your ground squirrels, and just like managing any pest or disease, you shouldn't rely on just one tactic, but having an integrated approach and thinking about it from the inception of the orchard is key. Moving on to the second pest of four, voles. What are we seeing for the damage, the signs, the symptoms when it comes to voles?
1: Voles sometimes are referred to as meadow mice. Talking about the same critters here. Voles are different than regular mice. Regular mice would be something along the lines of deer mice or house mice. Voles are actually a little bit larger than your standard mouse mouse shorter ears, shorter tail, blunt nose associated with them. Size-wise, they're usually somewhat intermediate between a gopher and a mouse. Moles are also a communal species and can cause lots of damage when they get to those high-density populations. In fact, they really love alfalfa. And some studies have shown densities of several thousand per acre in alfalfa. And so you can imagine you know, the damage they cause there It certainly would not be unheard of to see a hundred or more voles per acre in an orchard setting, particularly when you're dealing with some of those peak populations, which really kind of gets at one of the more difficult aspects about voles is that their populations do cycle more so than most of the other red species that we're talking about. And what that means is you can have very low densities of vole populations for one to several years. In fact, you might not even know that they're out there. And then all of a sudden, conditions get just right, and in a matter of a few months, those populations can really explode. And when those populations explode, they just start running out everywhere. For sign, what you're usually going to be looking for are their burrow systems. Voles have open burrow systems. The openings are about an inch to inch and a half in diameter. Generally, you'll find lots of openings in a relatively small area. And oftentimes you have what we call runways that go back and forth between those openings. Those are usually about an inch to inch and a half in diameter as well. And it's basically just a well-worn trail where the vole runs back and forth between those openings. If you see those kind of runways, that's a very strong clue that you have voles present. The most common type of damage that we see from voles is girdling of trees. So they're basically chewing the bark and the cambium layer of the tree usually from ground level up to maybe six inches or so above ground. That can lead to direct mortality of the tree. So you can see fairly substantial losses from voles, particularly when you hit those peak cycles where populations really explode. When it comes to the girdling damage, lots of rodents will cause girdling. It can be challenging to identify exactly what species it is. But the general rule of thumb for voles is, again, from ground level up to about six inches, Gophers will also girdle too, but they're usually below ground. Gopher girdling will usually be from ground level below. If you start to see it higher than that, it's probably something like rabbits or it could be ground squirrels climbing up. And I guess I should mention too with voles, they will chew on drip tape and irrigation lines and things like that as well.
0: It may just be really complicated because as you note with voles, They can go through these population cycles and be in a low population, high population, but is there a seasonality to managing for voles?
1: Usually your explosions are going to happen in late winter through springtime. So you really want to be out there just looking for general vole activity throughout winter. And if you start to see some of that activity, you probably want to try to treat right away because those populations can double, quadruple. Really, it's kind of exponential growth over the matter of a few months if those conditions really get ideal. Once they get to those super high levels, there's not a whole lot you can do except wait for them to crash. I mean, you can always try virginicide applications that's the one thing you could potentially use once they get to those really high numbers but even that becomes fairly challenging to try to knock them down at those really peak periods so your better strategy is to try to you know just be on the lookout for vole activity through winter and if you start to see a slight uptick then try to manage them then
0: when it comes to getting a call about vole damage in orchards it's just like you said they are known for that girdling issue and i think of young orchards in particular and orchards where there's a weed problem around the tree. And they have that free access where predators like birds are not going to be able to see them. So I assume weed management is also an important tactic. And you already mentioned another tactic with the rodenticide.
1: Probably the first tool that I would always encourage everybody to consider that has vole problems is that vegetation management. Habitat management is a good tool for a lot of species but more so for some than others. And bulls are that one species where habitat management really is key. You can keep a vegetation-free area around the base of the tree for two to three feet, at least, extending out. That's going to substantially reduce potential problems. Between rows, if you can keep vegetation-free, that's ideal. If you have cover crops or whatnot, then you want to try to keep them mowed to a relatively low height, preferably two inches of stubble height or less. But certainly, the shorter, the better. Just to reiterate, when it comes to managing voles, managing that vegetation is really the most important step that you can take to try to mitigate potential problems with them. Now, there are other tools that we can use as well, and that's you know the use of natural predation. We're seeing more and more folks interested in utilizing barn owls to try to manage rodent populations. Uh, Barn owls are really the primary predatory species that we focus on from a management perspective because you can put up barn owl boxes to uh, get owls to utilize them. And then they're relatively non-territorial as well. So they let you put up lots of barn owl boxes. They basically will tolerate a bunch of owls in their area. There's a lot of research going into this right now to see how effective it actually is. Some of the research is, I would say, at least moderately promising when it comes to gopher management. I think there's a lot less we know about how effective they are for managing voles though. Voles are so fecund, which is a fancy term for, reproductively successful if you will they can create lots of young really rapidly so the big question is can barn owls really stay on top of that kind of extreme reproductive output but maybe you know for a longer term maintenance issue they can keep them at a somewhat lower level certainly if you're somebody who wants to try that out vegetation management is going to be key because you want easy access for the owls to the rodents We didn't mention anything about this for ground squirrels because it really hasn't been shown to be effective. Barn owls are nocturnal, ground squirrels are diurnal, so they don't exist on the same time scales there. As far as other tools, with volves, you can use tree protectors around the trunks of trees to help mitigate girdling damage. These are usually hard plastic. The key with those kind of tree protectors is you do need to push them or bury them into the ground, preferably four to six inches deep. If you just lay them on top of the soil, like I see a lot of times people do, because it's much easier, obviously, you can actually exacerbate your problems because the voles can simply crawl up underneath that, climb inside, and now you've created a perfect environment for them where they have a ready food source and protection from predators. So you can actually see more damage uh, if used improperly. So if you are going to use them, make sure that you do push or bury them into the ground. People oftentimes talk about repellents Generally speaking, when it comes to rodents, there hasn't been a lot of success with repellents. However, I did test a product a few years ago called Anthroquinone. It was registered as a bird repellent, but it showed some promise in lab trials for voles and for some other species. And so we did a fairly extensive study on it. And we did find that it substantially reduced girdling damage from voles, which is pretty exciting. And this means it might be a little bit easier to implement than tree protectors. The problem is it's still not registered, so it's not something you can run right out and utilize right now, but stay tuned. We're hoping that sometime in in the future that it's going to be an option. Other strategies would include flood irrigation. This actually ties back into the use of natural predators to some extent as well. Obviously, flood irrigation is not possible in many orchards but if you're somebody who does maintain the ability to flood, then flooding can be a good tool to help manage voles and gophers and some other small rodents as well. And you're flooding the field, you're drowning some of them, but for those that you're not drowning, you're bringing up to the surface and now they're readily available for, particularly for raptors, but we also see coyotes and other mammalian predators hang out in these areas and, and pick off a lot of those rodents too. So once a year flooding can be a really great tool to try to mitigate some of those potential problems. And then lastly, you have the rodenticides that can be used. There are several different active ingredients, including your first-generation anticoagulants, as well as zinc phosphide. Rodenticides are really probably the only tool that's out there that can really be used to knock down large, extensive populations of voles. Burrow don't really work for voles. The burrow systems are way too numerous for it to be practical, and they tend to be too shallow for them to be effective. And the same thing applies for trapping Unless it's a really small, isolated population, which you could trap then, but otherwise they tend to be too numerous for trapping to be a practical tool.
0: Excellent. The cultural controls there with vegetation management, uh, potentially flooding, rodenticides being an option, and then the barn owls, a number of options, although trapping and fumigants not among them. Yeah. I don't think many folks would do the tree protector option and get them buried because that's just so labor intensive. Mm-hmm. But I also have the concern with that. You may be keeping the voles out, but you could be trapping moisture between the protector and the tree and increasing your phytophthora risk. So,
1: yeah. So there are supposed to be some protectors out there with small holes and whatnot in them that allow them to breathe a little bit. So potentially that might help solve some of those issues. But that's the thing about all of these tools they're not ideal in all situations right there are reasons and situations where you might use them in scenarios where you wouldn't Another great example of this is the cover crops right you know getting rid of cover crops helps solve a lot of problems with rodents but you have cover crops for reasons, right? And there's a lot of potential benefits for having cover crops out there as well. So you always have to consider all the different sides of, of all the different arguments in order to figure out which one of these strategies you want to use. Yeah,
0: really, a really good point about the complexities there. And then just looping back to our very start of this conversation discussing voles, I assume that you're at an elevated risk of having a big vole problem if you are adjacent to alfalfa.
1: Yeah. And so something else that we've actually looked at, I had a project a number of years ago in artichokes. Artichokes have, along with alfalfa, the two crops that have the most continual problem with falls. What happens in artichokes, historically, they were mostly the perennial varieties. And, and so the artichokes be producing for a good chunk of the year, but then they would go through and they would mow those fields down. And when that happened, the voles would leave the fields and move into some of those adjacent crops A lot of those fields are next to natural areas. After they chop everything down, the voles leave, they move into those natural areas and you have a few months where they're out of the fields. We could then go in and put some fencing along those natural areas. And that would dramatically slow that reinvasion into those artichoke fields when they started to grow back up again. And that would allow them a buffer to kind of stay on top of those vole populations to do some very targeted for applications at sites where they started to Pop up and they ended up curtailing their rodenticide use by three or four fold over the course of a given year just by putting that fencing up and doing some extensive monitoring to target them quickly. So, the reason I bring that up is fencing like that could be incorporated if you have a side or two of an orchard that's next to either a natural area or an alfalfa field where you continually have that migration of voles into those areas. For the fencing, what we ended up using was aluminum flashing. And we would dig a small trench, preferably eight to 10 inches deep. And then we would line it with that flashing and let it extend above ground for another eight to 10 inches above ground. And that serves as a barrier to keep the voles from moving into that area. You wouldn't want to use wire mesh. Some people might want to try that because it would be cheaper, but they can climb up over that mesh. The flashing, they cannot climb up over by burying it. You keep them from being able to dig underneath. And by having the flashing, it keeps them from being able to climb up and over. Now that doesn't keep them from going down the entire length of that fence and finally finding a way around. So it's not hundred percent exclusionary, but it does dramatically slow it. And also if you can keep a vegetation free zone next to that fence, in other words, maybe a foot or so of vegetation free area, then they won't hang out around that exterior and try to run up and down it to try to find a way around because if they do now they're exposed to those predators out there. So herbicide application or mechanical removal of vegetation from around the base of that fence will, will increase the utility of it too. So something you can consider if you have those kind of areas where voles move from and into your orchard.
0: The art of war here with voles and just that, how important a geography can be. So really interesting ideas there. Now moving on to a couple of pests I'm much less familiar with and are less frequently issues. But if you have them, that's a little consolation. Roof rats, what are we looking for in terms of damage that would tip us off that we're dealing with roof rats?
1: So you're right about roof rats, and that they are less of an issue throughout your area than some of the other rodent species. But we are seeing what we think is an increase in roof rat populations throughout the state. More so in the south, but kind of moving northward, I think it's entirely plausible you could start to see increased issues with rats in the future. For rats, the damage that you're going to see is, again, feeding of nuts or fruits up in trees. They also girdle trees more commonly than we do see with ground squirrels. So oftentimes, if I see girdling of branches up in a tree, I think of rats first and ground squirrels second. Or tree squirrels, which is an entirely other separate issue we're not talking about today. It's more common in certain citrus crops than I think it is in nut crops. And then like all rodents, they will chew on drip tapes and emitters. With roof rats, though, it's important to remember they're arboreal. So they like to get up and climb around in the trees and tree canopies. They will create nests up in the canopies, just a bunch of a big leaf pile across some of the branches. And so if you see some of that up there, that can be an indication that you have roof rats. Even though they spend a lot of time up in trees, they will also create burrow systems in the ground and hang out in those burrow systems. And those burrow systems are a little bit larger than what you would see for a vole. Certainly a fair amount smaller than what you would see for a ground squirrel. I'm going to ballpark it at maybe, uh, let's say, two inches in diameter. And usually just one opening or maybe two, but that's it. It's not a bunch of openings like we see with voles or mice or ground squirrels or something along those lines. And oftentimes they're fairly close to the base of a tree. They're nocturnal as well, so you're not going to see them unless you're out there at night. If you see some of this kind of rodent damage out there, but you're not exactly sure what it is, one of the strategies that we like to use is to put out game cameras. The remote-triggered cameras—they're more and more affordable these days. I mean, you can find cheap versions for 50 bucks. I might take a slight step up and go for something that's more in the 100 to 100. $20 range at least to get something that's a little bit better, but you don't have to get up into the really expensive ones to get good photos and good videos of these critters that are out there. But that can be a really good way to help you figure out what's out there. Your other strategy is to put some traps out there. Let's see what you catch. That can be a little bit more challenging though. If it's a rat, you're going to use a larger trap than you would use if it's a mouse. And so you kind of have to either put both types of traps out there or, or lean one way and, and hope that it's it's what you think it is out there. But that can be a really good way to help you figure out what's out there. They are active throughout the year. So you don't have to worry about that hibernation component like you do with grounds. Do the best you can to try to manage them during the non bearing season over the winter through early spring, because you have more tools available to you at that time. And there's less food available out there. So it makes it more likely that they would come into a trap or into a rodenticide bait station. So there really has been very little work done when it comes to managing roof rats in orchard systems. So I think in part because they weren't an extensive problem for a, a long period of time. Roof rats are an invasive non-native species. They've been in California for 400 years now, but they really have just kind of slowly been working their way into agricultural areas. They're primarily considered a commensal rodent species, which means they live in concert with humans. Big-time problems in urban and residential areas, but just now kind of starting to establish themselves in some of these agricultural settings. As far as tools... Habitat modification is going to be of limited utility because the trees provide the habitat for them. The one thing you definitely could do is get rid of those brush or pruning piles. So getting rid of those can help reduce some of those potential source populations. Otherwise, you're really largely relying upon either traps or rodenticides. For traps, the old standby has been snap traps. Um, You can place the rat sized snap traps up in the trees and they work pretty well at catching rats. The problem is is that you usually need a lot of snap traps and it's labor intensive and you have to check them pretty often because once a trap is set off, you can't catch anything else in it, right? Some people will use those live traps, those cage traps as well. And they work well for catching rats too. The problem is, is you do have to euthanize the animal after you capture them. More recently, There's the development of a trap in New Zealand called the A24. It was manufactured by Good Nature, and it's sold by the Automatic Trap Company here in the U.S. But what it is, is it's an automatic repeating trap. There's a lure inside of it. The animal crawls inside, usually an upward motion into the trap, and there's a little trigger in there. And when they hit that trigger, it activates the trap. And the trap is a CO2-fired bolt, more or less, that once it's triggered, it smacks them in the head, they're actually considered quite humane. They kill them or render them unconscious almost immediately. The rat falls out of the trap and the trap automatically resets itself. You can get up to 24 firings per trap and the lure can last four to six months. So the nice thing about these in theory is that you put these traps out there and you can forget about them for close to half a year or so. And then of course the rat falls down, scavengers come along and eat the rat. They're usually gone within a day or two and, that takes care of that particular issue for you. So we're actually actively testing them right now in orchards in the southern part of the state. The results haven't been as promising as I would like them to be, but we have identified some little tricks that we think are important. One of those being rats are so arboreal, we thought they would just climb up into the trap, no problems, but they don't seem to want to. So we put a little wooden platform underneath the trap so that the rat can stand on it And push itself all the way up into the trap and that really seemed to make a big improvement for us so we're going to continue to test those over the course of the next year and a half and so i'll have more results down the road as far as their overall efficacy but number one we're going to have to see good efficacy and number two they're pretty expensive we're talking 150 to 180 dollars a trap we're working on the spacing right now we're thinking more or less 50 meters spacing which is conversions, what, 55 yards, 165 feet, somewhere along those lines per trap. And so that's a lot of traps and a lot of expense out there. You'd probably need an orchard where you experience consistent problems with rats to justify it. If it's just an occasional flare up, you probably just want to go with snap traps, far far cheaper. The other option is rodenticides. During the non-bearing season, you oftentimes can utilize different kinds of rodenticides for orchard floor treatments or for bait station applications around the perimeter. But once you start to get green up on the trees, most of those tools go away. And the only thing that you can really use for a rodenticide application within most orchards is an elevated bait station. And for one specific product. Now I was involved with a project 10 years ago in almond orchards and we showed that an elevated bait station in other words a bait station placed up in trees was effective at reducing roof rat numbers in those orchards we saw 90 91% I think removal rates so it worked quite well and uh, so we were able to get special change to the 0.005% difastinone known uh, treated OATS label that CDFA registers and is sold by some of the different county ag commissioners. So if you have roof rat problems within the growing season, you can use those elevated bait stations for roof rack control in that situation, but that's the only thing you can use there. We do have actually an UC ANR extension publication devoted to this
0: Excellent. We'll link to that as well as resources for all four of these pests. And a really good point early on there that those game cameras are so key. You really want to make sure you're 100% sure of what pest you're dealing with before you embark on a management strategy. And that A24 trap sounds so cool. It's too bad that it's so expensive.
1: Like I said, we're working on all of that. We're trying to establish the efficacy of it, and then we're also trying to look at the cost effectiveness of it and trying to amortize out over several years to get a feel for you know how practical it likely is to include as part of an IPM program again. We don't want to rely just on rodenticides. There are resistance issues associated with that. There is decreased efficacy over time from bait avoidance. Lots of different concerns there but we don't want to rely just on traps either because there's learned trap avoidance and and some of those kinds of potential concerns there. So we really want at least, we want more than two, but right now we're kind of stuck with two different options. And so we really want to try to maximize the effectiveness of both of those. And it may turn out that even if they're more expensive, that they may have a role in managing roof rats.
0: Yes. And a cautionary note that you're seeing more and more issues with roof rats and that potentially creeping insidiously up So now, finally, for our our fourth pest, what can you tell us about the signs and the damage for deer mice?
1: Deer mouse damage is going to be a lot like roof rat damage. You'll see the little tooth marks on it. And then it can be tough to tell the difference between roof rat and deer mouse damage. So secondly, you're probably going to want to look for their burrow systems on the ground. You know, I've been in orchards, almond orchards, for example, where they were removing nuts from trees and then you would find the nuts on the ground. And sometimes you start to see them pulled down, parts of them pulled down into those little burrow systems. And that's kind of what you're looking for. It's it's a little bit CSI. If you're getting out there and you're trying to tie together different pieces, burrow systems, what kind of damage do we see up in the trees? If it's nuts, are they pulling them down in the burrow systems? Okay. Now we've got a better feel for exactly what it is um, we're dealing with. Yeah. With deer mice, it's mostly damage to the nuts and then again chewing on the drip tape not so much a girdling issue with deer mice technically really young trees like one two-year-old trees you might start see some of that girdling deer mouse burrow systems you're looking probably an inch in diameter sometimes even a little bit less than that so they're pretty small excellent
0: and i assume that just like the roof rats there may be a role here for a game camera and, and figuring out exactly what you're dealing with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Deer mouse burrow systems and and vole burrow systems can be fairly easily confused. So we're talking inch to inch and a half diameter burrow systems. You could just put out snap traps and see what you catch in those situations. So that's a possibility. But otherwise, yes, you could use game cameras too. The problem is is that when you get to critters as small as deer mice and voles they become a little bit more challenging to tell uh, from a photo or video. If it's a good photo or video, you'll tell. Um, Deer mice are white underneath. They have bigger eyes and bigger ears and a longer tail. Voles are brown all over, short tails, small eyes, and a blunt nose, short ears. I mean, you can tell the difference, but you're relying on a pretty good video or photo of it. I mentioned trapping as a potential tool to monitor for deer mouse activity. I probably should caution everybody though, when it comes to deer mice, well, first of all, deer mice are a native species to California, as opposed to, to roof rats, which are invasive, which means they've had the opportunity to build up certain diseases. And one of the ones to be concerned about with deer mice is hantavirus. A lot of you have probably heard of hantavirus. It's a very serious disease when it comes to humans fairly easily transmitted to humans by inhaling aerosolized feces, saliva, or urine, and that can happen on traps. So if you're catching deer mice, you need to be careful and cognizant of that. A lot of times people will just throw away the whole trap. Uh, You catch the deer mouse, just throw the trap away. They're only a dollar a piece. Buy a new one. If you really want to reuse them, you can, but you should um, spray them down with a a Clorox or a 10% bleach solution to kill any potential virus that, that may be present there.
0: really good point. I did a high school report on hantavirus. Uh-huh. And, oh, that is scary stuff. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, definitely be cautious with these traps and be cautious when cleaning out your garage or any place Absolutely. where there may be mice feces and things. So yeah. any other control approaches, any cultural controls or other things we should be thinking about when
1: it comes to the deer mouse? It's going to be fairly similar to, to roof rats, although trapping is probably less practical for deer mice than it is for roof rats because they're smaller and they're going to be more numerous and they're not going to travel around as far. So again, small populations you could control with traps. Uh, the A24 actually does work for the, the deer mice as well, but deer mice don't move near as far. So uh, if we're talking 50 meter spacing for roof rats, we're looking at 30 meter spacing for deer mice. and if you've ever done the math, you know, once you start shrinking even a little bit, the spacings between these kind of control techniques over large areas, it magnifies quite rapidly. So probably less practical there. Small localized populations, you wanted to, to snap trap or whatnot, you could, but, but otherwise that's probably not as practical. So for deer mice, you're fairly reliant upon the use of bait stations or rodenticide application to try to manage them. The CDFA 0.005% diphastone product was also registered in the same manner for deer mice because we also saw that it worked quite well for deer mice. In fact, it worked even better. We had 99% removal rates in the orchard systems. And so that's going to be your primary tool when it comes to reducing deer mice in those orchards. Deer mice actually like bare ground. So removing that kind of vegetation actually might not be as ideal. Increased vegetation probably reduces deer mouse populations, but it increases vole problems, gopher problems, or, you know, something else. So everything you do out there, it seems like it's going to increase problems with one thing and maybe reduce it with others. And so it's always a matter of just trying to figure out what your current problems are and how to best deal with them. For deer mice, you're largely reliant upon rodenticide applications at this time. Flood irrigation actually might not work as well for deer mice because they climb really well. So if you're flooding an area, they'll probably just climb up the trees. Yeah, constant trade-offs. Yeah, Yeah, not many many tools. (laughs) Not many tools for deer mice. Fortunately, (laughs) we don't find consistent problems with deer mice across most of the areas.
0: Well, thank you so much for this marathon through these four vertebrate pests. We'll certainly be linking to more information in the show notes for all four of these. Any final thoughts?
1: I think that encapsulates most of what, really wanted to cover. There is a Ground Squirrel Best Management Practices website that is a UC website that is kind of the one-stop shop when it comes to managing ground squirrels. For voles, there is a vertebrate Pest Control Handbook, which is a CDFA publication. There's a really good chapter. I think the deer mouse one is up to date as well. And for roof rats, I would direct you to the UC ANR publication that covers bait application within orchard systems. Those are probably going to be some of your primary tools, as well as the pest management guidelines and um, even the pest notes have some applicability for ag use, too. Perfect.
0: Well, Roger, thank you so much. And we'll certainly get back on the line and talk about updates as you continue your great research program when it comes to this human-wildlife conflict and your great work on these vertebrate pests. So thank you. Thank you.
1: You bet. Happy to help. Thanks for
0: listening to Growing the Valley, a UCANR podcast. You can find out more about this episode at our website, growingthevalleypodcast.com.
1: We'd like to thank the Almond, Pistachio, Walnut, and Prune boards for their support. We'd also like to thank my sister, Muriel Gordon, for writing and recording the theme music.